This episode is sponsored by Podgo. We use Podgo to monetize all of our podcasts and get paid within 24 hours. So if you're a podcast, want to get paid, be sure to check out Podgo. That's P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. That's Podgo dot C-O. And be sure to enter our name in the How Did You Hear About Podgo section of the application. See you guys in the episode. It's the language of the universe. But I don't understand it. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Math and Physics Podcast. I'm your host, Parker. And I'm Ray, and we welcome you to episode number 54, where today we are going to be talking about experiments that changed the course of history of physics of course of science that is that is a little bit dramatic yeah of course i but mean we have just... to make it dramatic for the the audience expects drama you guys expect it's just drama. gonna be very cool experiments yeah in general and also maybe kind of not what you're expecting mm -hmm. because when you when you think of experiment you think of okay there's a setup you got equipment you try to measure something, mm -hmm. okay? But we are going to dive into some thought experiments Ooh, yep. where where we are going to be living in a perfect world where our tools are perfect, but we're going to analyze, you know, maybe some situations where we need thought experiments mm -hmm. to kind of really understand concepts. Thought experiments some... are super important. Like, yeah, because I think a lot of them lead to theories. Very important theory, because a lot of things, like sometimes you just can't, really perform in reality right like the famous einstein thought experiment of the train you know the light with the mirrors mm -hmm. and the train the classic way of explaining i relativity. don't think that experiment led to a theory no no no. I but the idea that the... it has the idea of the theory i mean the idea of the thought experiment leads you to understand a lot about what the theory of relativity is and what it means so it's like it's yeah. like one of like it's part of like his postulates and is the ways he understood relativity so it's and just in this case yeah, so thought experiments could be relativity. really important sorry oh are we hinting towards a special relativity oh. part two? <laughs> oh, i think we need to i think we really do we've been the, we, we've been mentioning it back and forth but then i think this one the took reason triumph why though because is because we don't really know what to say we've already gone through we a have, lot of the concepts in the part one and so we'd have to do kind of a little bit of research figure out what we haven't said and what we could say that would be like something new mm -hmm. also we don't want to repeat the same thing also someone actually recommended see again we do your recommendations just a long time later because i think someone recommended like a history of physics yeah. episode but instead of talking about people talk about experiments I'll actually and, try to find that. Yeah, so maybe if you can find that, that would be really cool. But like, uh, yeah, so someone emailed us and said, hey, why don't you do this instead? And we put it in the back burner and never really did it well until now. So I think it's a really cool idea. And instead of just talking about, you know, it's just two or three experiments, we're going to talk about some experiments that kind of like, kind of reshaped science, you know? Okay, so this was actually um, Jeremy Bayer. He sent us an oh, email. Oh, wait, hasn't he just and commented, he, I think, a few times? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. He, he sent us an email saying that we should do a history of physics, but where we pick experiments. Mm -hmm. And now I, you, I don't think this is going to be... I guess we can 
make this part of the history of physics. No, um, not really. Not really. Because it's, really. it's historical. But yeah, but we're talking about... This is like a one-part, I think. No, actually, this doesn't have to be a one-part episode. We can make... No, it doesn't have to cause, be. Because we can just think... Because there are a lot of experiments in history that have... So maybe we can talk about... Maybe we can talk about the name later, but we can, I think, think about something apart from history of physics. Maybe like a new name, a new series, talking about experiments that change the course of history. Something like that. We'll think about that. We'll give it a thought. For sure. But for, for now, sure. just experiments that change the course like of history. So mm-hmm. yeah, so let's get into it. So I no, think before oh, we get into yeah. the podcast, news. we do have I forgot our about the news, news segment. Our, yep. our little news segment here. Yep, so yep. first of all, we have passed eighty five thousand downloads. So close to a hundred thousand. So close. We can, so we close. can taste it. We can taste and it. back it's when there. we were, I think we had like twenty episodes out. Mm-hmm. I told Rayhan, I said we're gonna hit a hundred thousand before a hundred episodes, and Rayhan doubted me so bad. But as always, I'm. <laughs> I don't think there's no way we're gonna hit a hundred thousand by a hundred episodes. Because as always, I am. I don't know. I'm I just turning never out to be right that way. And uh, I don't think. Yeah, I mean we. I know episode one of the podcast is nearing 10,000 downloads. Really? Yeah. And so we're not exactly at a thousand episodes or a thousand downloads per episode, but you know. Oh yeah. It's very skewed. It's really weird Mm -hmm. because like a lot of our, our, a lot of our earlier episodes are really nice, but then actually it's not even that it's kind of like, it's kind of like picking up slowly because as we're Mm -hmm. growing now, like a lot of people are getting to know our recent episodes. And then a lot of these people are going and watching our original episodes. So those guys are growing. But these guys that we're releasing now are growing as well, just faster. Right. So it's all like a whole, it's a whole distribution. If you think about it, like a statistical distribution. So uh, we can actually think about, you know, where is our maximum? But yeah, I mean, I mean, that's the idea. So we also have uh, a quick Spotify update on our Spotify followers. We have hit or passed 6,500 followers now. So, yeah, I Thank mean, that's a pretty much. big, I don't know. It's just a, it's just a mark. I think every episode we're just going to like try to announce our news, alert you guys about what's happening with the podcast. So, so yeah, I think we can definitely get to 10,000 very soon. If you are listening to this episode right now on Spotify, make sure to hit that follow button. We are trying to get to 10,000 followers. Also, if you're watching this on YouTube right now and you have a Spotify account, (laughs) make sure to check out the audio versions because the audio versions are actually a little bit different from the video versions because we don't edit the video versions at all because it would just be difficult with the like the video and the audio and all that stuff. But the audio, it's a little bit easier because we can just like cut parts out. So... Anyways, the point is make sure to subscribe to us on YouTube because we are almost at 500 subscribers on YouTube. Oh, um, yeah. Nice. So cool. other than that, you can ask us questions. You can leave a comment. You might be asking, why should I leave a comment? Because of the comment of the week, hey. which this week comes nice from Divisible by Zero. They say, wait, sorry, who yes. said this? Who said this? Divisible by Zero. Oh, that's the name of the account. Yes. Oh, okay. And they say they say yes. I love how the episodes are getting longer and longer as they go. Much love, keep it up. Not the first comment, but I'll take second place. Hey, well, that's nice. That's you nice. hold first place because you are the comment of the week this oh, week. Oh, he got it. So, he got it. 
You got it. Make sure to leave a comment on this episode. We are going to, I think we should start taking just comments from the actual episode. For the, like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because first, when we like originally clips. started the comment of the week, yeah. we also weren't getting that many comments. So I think you yeah. guys are commenting more because of the comment of the week, which is nice. I mean, it's working, right? So originally, mm-hmm. um, we were just picking random comments, like some were emails and stuff like that. And I think we will mm-hmm. still pick emails. Like, if you guys send us like really cool emails, like, we're still going to pick them for the comment of the week, even though it's not a comment. Yeah. But so it doesn't have to be that. But like, we're not going to pick like a comment from like 20 episodes ago, unless it was made like in the same week, right? Because it's comment of the week. If we got anything in that week, we'll talk about it. I think from now on, make sure to leave your comment on YouTube in the comment section of the full length episode and we'll pick comments from that comment section boom not like not like the clips or i mean instagram uh, or anything we can but like yeah it would be preferred it would be easier for us sure so yeah (laughs) so let's get into this let's get into it i think we should start with okay so before we get into like the experiments that truly shaped like history where we talk about the past experiments and you know like some experiments we're i think gonna get into that happened in the 1700s the 1600s and these guys were just you know geniuses all the way back then so it's really interesting to think about but before we get into the past i think we should talk about two very monumental experiments that took place in this uh in this century so in basically in the 2000s right so the one that happened actually very recently, which is in uh, 2015, 2016, the very famous LIGO experiment. So I think we have spoken about LIGO before. I definitely remember where it's basically a gravitational wave observatory. It's called the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. stands for mm-hmm. LIGO. I think we talked about it in the um, interview with dr steinberg yes i think i think we did i think we did talk a little bit about that yeah it was a i mean it's a really cool facility and you know they have huge arms and stuff to basically detect gravitational waves and in 2015 almost and this is a little weird i was talking to parker about this before a little almost exactly a hundred years after einstein's general relativity paper which was in 20 uh, in uh, 1915 they discovered these gravitational waves in 2015 and i just find i mean it's just a little eerie which is actually like one of the predictions that has been confirmed right Mm -hmm. because the theory of general relativity has several predictions and um you know gravitational waves is one of Mm -hmm. them and so a hundred years later approximately Mm -hmm. it was actually confirmed now some things have yet to be confirmed like white holes we have not confirmed white holes. We have confirmed black holes, though, mm-hmm. recently with the images of black holes. But even before capturing an image, um, theoretically, or I guess experimentally, we knew that black holes already existed because of the mass and the kinematics of galaxies around the centers. We could infer that something really, really massive and, you know, not that big quote-unquote mm-hmm. big was lying at the in, in the in the center yeah and gravitational waves are so important because remember einstein predicted that gra- basically he said gravity doesn't even exist it's not a force it's just basically space-time right and if you guys checked out um our episode 51 with uh, dr saeed rastegu super cool episode where we were actually talking about 
how gravity is not a thing. It's not even, it, it's just a consequence of space-time curvature. So gravitational mm. waves are not gravity. It's just space-time moving up and down. It's basically just oscillating space-time. So I don't know if we spoke about how they did the experiment, maybe just a quick rundown. Like, so basically LIGO has two arms that are perpendicular to each other. And if a gravitational wave in this sense were to pass by Earth, it would be moving in one direction primarily, right? So it will be moving one. So remember, because gravitational waves is space time that is moving, like it's literally stretching and compressing space time. That's space, basically. So when it comes to one of the detectors, it will shrink one of the detectors, one of the arms, more than it does the other, right? Because one is perpendicular to one and it's only going in one direction. So it's going to shrink one more than the other. So the light that is actually being reflected off of these arms will take different times to reach the photo detector. And okay, they will... but think about this real quick. Yeah. I don't know if you have the answer to this, but what if um, the two perpendicular arms are like set up in a way like if as if they were the two top sides of a equilateral triangle? And then what if the gravitational wave comes in like transversely? Right. So then it would kind of affect the arms by the same amount. So how would it work? No, but this is perfectly perpendicular. Right. So it's literally two different. You can think about it like if you're thinking about X and Y, right? They're two different dimensions. So you're looking at two perpendicular dimensions. You're literally looking at two different directions. Like one that no, goes north and one that goes out. east. Like what if it's like this? <laughs> this isn't a very good audio for description. For the audio, yeah. For the... <laughs> okay. <clears throat> what I'm, what I'm, okay, imagine it's like a tent, right? Like the two oh, sides of a I tent. Oh, I understand what you're saying. I kind of do. And then it do. sweeps out vertically like like across so it kind of affects each arm by the same amount i kind of understand what you're saying but that won't necessarily be the case because of the speed of light and how fast these detectors are really detecting this change so the moment the gravitational wave comes and shifts one of them again i'm i'm probably this is just my guess obviously i i don't know this but my my guess is the moment the gravitational wave comes and shifts one of them the other one is still going to be in sync so the light that's received mm. at the photo detector for that split second which obviously it can account for is is because so i guess now you can kind of comment on the accuracy of these detectors. yeah i was i was actually just gonna say like a really cool <laughs> yeah. thing about ligo is that um maybe i can pull the quote straight from the thing but um basically wait where where is it do i still have the quote oh no way oh it's right here it's right here um sorry sorry guys i'm looking for Okay, basically he was saying the accuracy of LIGO is like measuring the width of a micron. So basically like like think about the width of a human strand of hair. So a micron basically, a micron thick. Measuring a human hair at the distance from Earth at Alpha Centauri, which is about four light years away. So the accuracy is as good as seeing that piece of hair four mm. light years away. <clears throat> That's how extremely accurate, accurate. but you know this is accurate in terms of human tools right because we're never going to need that type of accuracy for measurements locally of here course of Earth. course this is just for extra but, extraordinary experiments right but when you think about 
astronomical scales. This is actually quote unquote not that accurate. Four light years? Right. What do you mean? Four light years is not that far. Oh, nothing. It's absolutely right? nothing. Exactly. It's nothing. Exactly. So that accuracy when you're trying to measure something that is, you know, twenty billion light years away. Mm-hmm. Of course. It's not going to translate as well as, Mm -hmm. you know, something that's four light years away. Mm -hmm. Of course. But remember, like, like just simply the idea of these detectors is that space time will be moved and we can measure a difference in light. And this happened in 2016. And we have measured that and seen that. Another really famous experiment that was kind of conducted in the recent century or, yeah, I mean, I guess this was an experiment. The Large Hadron Collider in CERN detected the Higgs boson for the very first time. Now, for anyone who... And, and this happened around in 2012. Like, around in... Twi- right? Yeah, I mean, around in... Because when, when I searched online, it said 2011 to 2013. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, it happened so recently. Why don't you know that? But I'm pretty sure it happened in 2012. But the interesting thing about the Higgs boson is that it was proposed by Peter Higgs, hence the name, and his colleague Francois Anglaire, but I guess Peter got the got the credit. So, um, so it was designed and it was thought of by both of these gentlemen in 1964. <laughs> and they had been trying to find ev- like experimental proof for the Higgs boson, obviously ever since then, but they knew that the experimental accuracy and technology was nowhere close back in the 1960s but then when they opened up cern they tried to look for this particle but i believe that they were unsuccessful and then after like a revamp of the facility and i guess i guess a few more tries so basically they're just smashing particles together over here and seeing if anything gets excited enough so that they can detect them and they detected for the very first time this particle that they had never seen before. And everyone called it the God particle that we now simply know is the Higgs boson. And the, the meaning behind this is because the, the Higgs boson is not that special because mm-hmm. it's just a particle. What's more important is the Higgs field. The field, so much like the electric field, right? Like an electron, we were talking about it. And like an electron is an excitation of the electric field. So in the same way, a Higgs boson is an excitation of the Higgs field. So if you're imagining the Higgs field is basically everywhere in the universe, and it is what allows particles to gain mass. So basically, in other words, when particles interact with the Higgs field, they are restricted from traveling the speed of light. So this actually answers the question for why massless particles can travel at the speed of light because they don't interact with the Higgs field. And because they don't interact with the Higgs field, it's basically a smooth transition and they can travel at this maximum possible speed. And something that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's really cool. Is that we actually interviewed uh, a physicist that worked on the team that discovered or experimentally proved, discovered, slash found (laughs) the Higgs boson. Dr. Pekka Sinervo, which was was episode episode number... Four, I, think, I, yeah. never, I love I love that gentleman. He was my he was one of my professors for one of my classes. Amazing guy, super, super cool. Because he was he was teaching me a very low level physics course. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> a very low level physics course, right? And I'm like, okay, this guy's probably, you know, not done that much. 
That is not true. Blown away. <laughs> Blown away. This guy has done everything you can imagine, man. And something that's, anyway, that's yeah. really <laughs> awesome is that, you know, really good, intelligent physicists always have the best analogies for things, right? Yeah. You, you ask them, like, a complicated question about some complicated theory, and they're like, okay, think about it this way. And then suddenly, you know, it makes a lot more sense in your head, even though you haven't studied mm -hmm. the actual details of it. And I mm -hmm. think we talked about, uh, we asked them a question about topics in physics that just can't be explained, not even topics in physics, just topics that come up in, in our physical universe that can't be explained by physics. And he brought up the example with mixing milk in coffee, right? And how you just can't, like, no matter how much uh like experimental setup you have and and how accurately your devices are after a certain point you will just not be able to to exactly model how liquids just disperse because it, it does have to do with turbulence which we have talked mm -hmm. about like how with, the milk uh, basically flows into the coffee is mm -hmm. what you're talking about right and yeah, we like talked about turbulence also disperses yeah. with um our first year, our first year uh, physics professor, uh, Paul. Wow! Wait, we're blanking. Wait, doctor, um, doctor. I know his name is Paul. Wait, there's no wait, 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 wait. <laughs> doctor Julian. Paul Sorry, Kushner. Guy, we... Paul Kushner. 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 <laughs> doctor Kushner. Doctor. Yeah. Oh my! That was so. Oh my! This was really sad. Well, sorry for that. Quick. Oh wow. Okay. Doctor Kushner. Yes, he was a very. Very, very cool guy. We were, yeah, we were talking about fluidity, uh, like flowing and stuff with him as well. Also with Tom Rock's map in uh, with, with Tom Crawford, we were also talking about fluid flow because he actually got his PhD in fluid mechanics and fluid flow and stuff like that. So yeah, so that's where, you know, all of these different parts, like, you know, become really important. And yeah, so the Higgs field with a really cool experimental um, result back in 2012. I think, sure, now, I think sure. now we can move on to the uh, the true historical experiments. I'd like to take our listeners now on a trip, a oh. blast to the past. I love this. And this is my favorite thing to talk about because I am truly intrigued by history itself. You know, not even the history of physics, just history in general. Like, how do you even live in a time where you think... The world is like Europe, Asia, and Africa. You do you do not even know about the the extent of where you live, right? The universe. This may be a little bit dramatic. I'm not going that far back. I am going. People back. lived and died. I'm sorry to cut. But I'm I'm just thinking about this now too. People lived and died, so their entire life, not knowing anything about yeah. what they were living in what mm. situation they were in understanding why mm. i mean i guess we don't know why now any i mean either but like just understanding where we are yeah and this might be Man, a that's... little a little bit of a sidetrack here but i was thinking about this i don't know when but i i, I was thinking about let's say this is like seventy thousand years ago you're a hunter gatherer just you know collecting berries and hunting animals right 
you don't know anything about anything, right? You, you don't know anything about, well, okay. <laughs> you don't know anything about like world geography. I mean, you don't yeah, know you know anything. how to kill a, you like kill skin an animal or something. Yeah, you don't sure. know anything about like actual like modern physics or history. Like, History. I mean, obviously, yeah, like but, a guy in the past wouldn't know modern physics. Like, I mean, it's right. obvious in the word modern. Okay, but what, all I'm saying is that you don't really know anything about anything, okay? And you know, you know absolutely even less, right, about space and the the Earth itself and where you're living, right? Like how, you, you have no way of knowing that your entire life, like where you live, is just infinite like nothing tells you that that is not the case like if you were to just walk in one direction like it's like a minecraft world it just never stops like generating right Mm -hmm. and so if you think about if you try to put yourself into that perspective then it kind of makes sense to believe that you are at the center of the universe that's yeah that's a that, that, that that's the argument that everyone lived by and I think, you know, a lot of people, I mean, if, if you think about the universe as an infinite thing, obviously, you know, like 500, 600 years ago, or, or just, or you're not probably even thinking about the universe. You're I, think just thinking about, I think that's not far back enough. <laughs> okay. I guess, 500 I years mean, ago, they had. Okay. Like, I, okay. I guess 500 <laughs> years ago, that's true. But yeah. I'm saying like 1500 years ago, let's say 2000 years ago, people really didn't understand the vastness of the universe. Right. I mean. Again, we also just understand our observable universe right now, but people really didn't understand the true, true reality yeah. of what we're living in, right? Yeah, that's true. So, and the idea is that if they couldn't understand it, I mean, we simply have an idea of like, for example, when we say 95 billion light years, it's 95 billion light years long. Like, what does that mean? We yeah. can't really understand it. It's so just, it's just, just a result idea. to exactly. some like models so, that we've come up with. What they were doing five like five thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, is not that crazy because if you think about it, like we don't really have an, a concept of distance right now, and we will probably never with our size, like two meters long, like that's nothing. We will never truly understand the concept of distance scale in the universe. So it's not a very big difference between someone six hundred years, uh, like six thousand years back, five thousand years back. To someone now. Although, with what you because, said... So, don't, 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 just one yeah. more thing. Because in our frame of mind, we are the center of the universe. If yeah. you think about it. I feel like, like, 70,000 years ago, life felt a lot more like a video game, you know? You just spawned in, and then you just, like, lived, and then, like, it was over, you know? You never really thought about anything, like, outside of that. But that is, the, I think, the, the, the pinnacle, the definition of you do you. Okay. Just... You do you, man. I, w- I want to comment on what you said earlier, though, about with our size as being like around two meters. Um, I have an issue with that in that I don't think that like massive life forms could really exist. And think about it like think about it like this. If a planet was so big, so massive that to be able to like hold yourself up on two legs you would need like massive bones massive muscles right you just biologically you would have to be a huge creature 
to be able no, to sustain the gravitational pull. No, I'm not saying we should pull. be big because we're never, we can never truly be no, ever know, that know, big listen, biologically speaking. But I'm listen. saying that's the restriction though. That's the whole restriction. Okay, okay, I get it. But but just listen, I'm saying that we're never ever going to find like intelligent beings that are like 20 times bigger than we are. At least, like, you know. I can the, see that, okay, yeah. The universe I, I, I is infinite, so I don't actually know. I'm just guessing because here's the thing. First of all, first of all, to be able to live, to be able to be 20 times bigger than a human and to be alive, you need a lot of food, first of all, which means you need a lot of resources and a lot of a, a lot of a lot of things. OK, also, let's say um, for like biological reasons, the reason why you have to be so big is to like fight. The, I think this argument might make zero sense, but bear with me. You, you need to fight like the gravitational pull of a massive planet right um but turns out that a planet can only be so massive before it turns into a uh like what are they called like a brown uh like like the planets that are in between stars and like actual planets like i'm pretty sure jupiter is actually like in between a brown dwarf, let's call him. I think that's what the actual brown name dwarf, is. yeah, is the, is the term for. I think it, Jupiter's yeah. actually like in between a brown dwarf and an, and a planet because it's so massive that it's actually like almost, like it's almost there, you know. Hmm. But, anyways, I like, mean there are bigger planets, but yeah. Yeah, but all that to say is that you can never support life on a planet after a certain mass, right? But I don't know. I mean, you're talking about like individual people that are huge like i don't think that's something that i was even talking about like i'm just saying i guess i guess that's a question that you can ask like or yeah people well some biological creature like some creature anyways not that it not that any of this has anything to do with what we're talking about (laughs) if you have any opinions please let us know (laughs) nothing to do with Uh, what we're talking about (laughs) (laughs) we might get back to this idea in the future so i was gonna (laughs) Go back into the past and talk about something very simple, but very remarkable and a little bit counterintuitive, okay? So it's, it's said, right? The tale goes as such. Galileo was sitting in church during mass and he was looking at a chandelier because he was bored. He looked up at the chandelier and it was swinging, okay? And as we all know, If you have some type of pendulum, you start it at some height. Over time, that height is going to, like that maximum height is going to decrease until it comes to rest. Okay. But he noticed that the period seems to stay the same all throughout the pendulum's lifetime. And so back in the 1600s, they didn't have clocks or anything like that. So he used his pulse to actually time the period of the pendulum. And he saw that, you know, even if the pendulum was swinging wildly, the time it would take to go back and forth would be the exact same as if the pendulum was just swinging very, uh, very lightly, right? And, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. intuitively, if you were to ask like a non-physics student, non-math student, like, what would you expect? Well, they would say, okay, well, if this pendulum is swinging 
to a very high extent, it's moving very fast. And so the period will be short and then, or yeah, the period will be, sh will be short. And then if it's moving slower, the period will be longer. But, you know, if you model this mathematically, you'll actually find that the period of a swing only depends on the length of the, of the pendulum, not on the mass and also not on the starting height. And so you can actually interchange the masses, you know, you can interchange the, like how high you start the pendulum at and the periods will actually stay the same as long as the length is the same. And so that was but kind of- But do remember a, like the height, sorry, sorry, but do remember like the height from like the surface of the earth, it will change on it because it depends on G as well, right? Like small G. Okay, I'm talking about pendulums like here gravitational at acceleration. the surface. At the surface. Okay, of yeah. The so if you're just obviously if you're just talking about the surface, then yeah, it's not really gonna make a difference. But like if you're doing it on sea or like at sea level, or if you're swinging a pendulum, I don't know, up on a mountain, for example, like yes, there will be a very slight change. Obviously, very there microscopic. There will be the, the ever there, so slightest change. <laughs> but there will be a change. That, that that's the point. That it depends not only on the length but also on G, that's that's the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And this right. idea will actually right. come up in an experiment that I have to explain later on. But yeah, this, uh, this little pendulum pulse timing experiment is, you know, he, he figured out a physical property about pendulums and their periods just by using his eyes and his pulse. Turns out he's absolutely correct. The, the periods do not change whether you're high, low, heavy, light, it only depends on the actual length of the rope. Man, that's... And the amazing thing about all of these things that we're going to be talking about today, because there are some really cool experiments that we're going to dive into, is that these guys are literally just just people, just regular people, just just had a thought have, in their head. They have creative want, ideas. Like, they just have they're just regular people like you and me have thought have a thought in their head they're like hey let me let me just try and do this and it just revolutioni revolutionizes history like i just think that idea the concept of you just sitting at home and thinking about something like you know for example when like newton was uh sitting at home quarantining from the plague at the time or something Right, like he just discovered. Wait, what did he he discover when he was sitting at home? Was it calculus? Yeah, was it calculus or was it? Yeah, yeah, it was calculus. Okay, so it was calculus when he was just sitting at home. See something like that? It's just amazing. And physics itself is actually the the wildest detective situation mm -hmm. here. The mm -hmm. clues, the clues are under your nose. Right, you have you have all the clues available well you don't have all the clues but yeah you really don't have all the clues but you're trying to find a lot you of have clues. you have a lot of clues a lot of clues in front of you you need to actually come up with ways to piece these clues together and come up with different explanations mm -hmm. you know for example how do we explain the physics of stars right how do you even start to analyze stars it's not it's not even like we're close to our sun relatively we are close to our sun but we are still hundreds of millions of miles mm -hmm. away or 
a hundred million miles away. Um, so how do you even how do you know what's going on inside the star if we're so far? Nevertheless, you know, every other star in the universe. Well, turns out that we are really good at using clues and using tools to piece these clues together. For example, looking at um, the spectral uh, properties of uh, of elements, burning elements, which, you know, stars are just burning balls of elements at the end of the day. Um, and I, I do think spectroscopy is one of the most revolutionary, um, like, tools that we have spectroscopy in, in astrophysics, right? Is insane. Absolutely. I think not crazy. only in astrophysics, in literally anything. Because no, I know. In, you in, can in understand anything. the composition of a lot of different things, just I in think, general. I think more only... specifically, though, we use spectroscopy so often in astrophysics um, mm-hmm. to determine, like, the composition of stars to determine the redshift of stars which has to do with their their velocities or sorry the redshift of galaxies which has to do with their velocities and actually the redshift has to do with also um their their age which we can actually touch on in a further episode Mm -hmm. of uh astronomy part four (laughs) if you guys are interested um but yeah the um You go ahead, Ray, with your next experiment. Yeah. So moving on to another fundamental experiment in the history of science. We have Ernest Rutherford's gold foil experiment. So if you guys have taken like a chemistry class in grade 11, grade 12, you might have heard of the gold foil experiment, which basically sort of proves that the atom is not the smallest part of the universe, is not the fundamental piece of nature. Because originally, when atoms were, you know, thought of or devised, like the meaning of atom in in Greek means indivisible. It means uncuttable or something like that, right? Which is false. (laughs) Sorry? Which is false. Oh, of course. Like the statement is false, but the yeah. atom means, yeah, the atom means indivisible. Yeah. And Rutherford was like, well, no, I don't, I don't think so. I think the atom has a central part to it with things flying around, right? With, with, with these negative charges flying around, basically. So his idea was to send positively charged particles. So basically just the nucleus, again, in that time, They didn't even know the nucleus existed. So they just charged, I guess, a particle and they sent it through. The point being that there was a gold foil that was simply straight in front of that laser, let's say. And there was a screen all around that gold foil, nearly 360 degrees all around that gold foil, kind of like almost like like, uh, like circulating it almost except for that, obviously, that one slit where the laser can come in from. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, it's not actually a laser. Laser is the wrong word for it, but I'm just using it because a lot of people can understand, like, oh, it's okay, it's a light. It's a light beam, right? So it's like charged particles, basically. It's not even light, really. So the idea is that if an atom is an indivisible element, then the gold, then then all of the particles from the from the charged beam would pass through the gold 
and end up in the same spot. Actually, basically. that's not the reason. Like you said, you said if the atom is indivisible, then it would actually just pass through. But the 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 actual reason is because before this experiment, they thought that atoms were like plum puddings, right? They were like positively yeah, the plum charged. Model. Yeah, or like positively charged uh, particles inside of like a negatively charged pudding type deal, or maybe maybe it was the opposite, like a positively charged pudding with um, negatively charged particles inside of it. But anyways, the point was that these packets were neutral because it was positive and negative. They would just cancel each other out, and everything would be neutral. So if you were to send positive particles through the gold foil. There would just be no electromagnetic interaction whatsoever because everything is neutral, so it would just pass straight through. But what they what they saw was that there was deflection, mm -hmm. reflection of these particles, which actually um, was proof that it's not these neutral packets, but they're separated in in positive and negative, and that these positive particles would sometimes come close to the nucleus which would then you would have an electromagnetic uh, interaction there, which could deflect, reflect, and deviate the paths of these, of these mm -hmm. particles. So basically what they observed was that all of the, like these, these particles of this beam were not all traveling in a straight line and appearing in the same, uh, in the same place that where they left. Instead, they were all deflected around this circle and the percentage and the, um, and the amount, you know, per 1000 and basically understanding the percentages of where each would go is also obviously written up in a very concise manner. Not that I'm going to start spitting it out right now, but mm -hmm. the idea is that there is a probability for any of, of, for this alpha particle to go anywhere, depending on what part of the nucleus it hits, where it hits, how it interacts. So many factors, so many, so many factors. Mm -hmm. And Again, the moral of this story, like the, 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 the moral of this experiment is that it kind of sort of proved or helped prove that the atom is not an indivisible element. It instead contains smaller, uh, um, smaller subatomic particles, hence the name. Mm -hmm. And I believe first we only understood the nucleus and electrons before decomposing the nucleus into neutrons and protons, mm -hmm. right? That's and, right. And remember, like, the idea behind all of this is simply to have a good understanding of your situation. So he understood what he needed to do to prove this experiment. And I think that's a big part of experiments, knowing how to design it. And if you guys want to check out Brilliant... They have some really cool courses on experimental design, how you can, you know, think about experiments and how you can set them up, the procedure, the hypothesis. It basically has the whole has the whole package deal where you can learn about some different concepts. For example, I'll just I'll just uh, pull some examples out. It has a cool course literally called experimental design, one called data collection another uh, observation versus experiment. Mm -hmm. So it basically gives you a good idea of all these different uh, ways to think about experiments. Right? Which are and all crucial parts, yeah, by the way, because exactly, experimental exactly. physics is not just, you know, you, you have data and you analyze it, right? It's, it also has a lot to do with the actual setup of the experiments, the tools that you're using, the uncertainties, how you collect the data, and then how you actually analyze the data to produce conclusions. 
Mm -hmm. A lot of this, again, uh, stems down back to thinking about the experiment, right? Like how, like you would need to know the material well enough to truly perform the experiment. And well, Brilliant helps you do all of that, right? With its vast amount of courses on all of these different topics that we're talking about today. Um, a lot of these experiments we can actually see there's talking about directly spoken about on Brilliant. So it's really cool. And I think they also, I mean, they, they still have them and we keep talking about them. The daily challenges, really cool challenges. Parker and I do them sometimes. And it's just like fun to, you know, give your give your mind a little spin. For sure. You know, we always yeah. advocate for the, the interactive style courses where you can actually learn and then apply your knowledge. And so for the first 200 listeners to click our link in the description make sure to click that link you will get uh 20% off your premium membership so make sure to click that link Ooh, down below it's brilliant.org slash mpp math and physics podcast so yeah um yeah also i wanted to actually transition into the quantum world because we all know how oh. magnificent the quantum world is. And Beautiful. Absolutely. I've actually recommended this book. I've recommended this book quite a number of times before. It is Quantum, the nature or the great debate about the nature of reality by Manjit Kumar. What a fantastic book. And he talks about actually thought experiments that... Uh, Einstein actually came up with to go against the ideas of Niels Bohr, who agreed with uh, Werner Heisenberg, who came up with the um, uncertainty principle. Okay, and there are two versions of the uncertainty principle. The first one is that there is a lower bound to the product of your uncertainty in the position and the uncertainty in the momentum meaning that you can't know both at the same time. Also, analogously, there is also a lower bound on the uncertainty in the um, energy and the uncertainty in time. I'm going to talk about two experiments mm -hmm. that actually Einstein came up to say, hey, look, here's an experiment that would break this uncertainty principle. Therefore, you're wrong and we need to think about a better theory okay so first of all this is called the einsteins is sorry to cut you off but the uncertainty in time thing i think is really cool because thinking about like position and momentum like since we're observing them since we're measuring them we can picture we can visualize an uncertainty like okay this is five five meters away plus or minus two centimeters so so we can understand the idea of uncertainty but when we're talking about time Right. It, it's, it's a it's a very interesting thought, because even when you're measuring time, you can have an uncertainty with that. And what this implies, like what this implies in like future stuff, like I don't know if we're going to talk about like going to how that implies, like, you know, quantum fluctuations and all that kind of stuff. So the, that uncertainty in time argument, I think, is a really cool uncertainty because it implies a lot of heavier <laughs> things. Anyways, you can continue. The uncertainty itself is cool. <laughs> But yeah. So uh, the, f the first one of these thought experiments is called the Einstein slit. And he says, okay, um, we have like a double slit 
uh, situation here. And so we send a photon through a double slit and, but it's a little bit modified. We actually hook up like a spring or some kind of device that can measure um, the deflection of the photon. So if the photon goes through the top slit and gets deflected downwards, then we would see the spring like compress because the photon would push it upwards. Or if the photon would go through the bottom slit, the, the spring would uh, elongate. <laughs> Is that the word? Stretch. Stretch, right. Okay. Yeah, the, 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 <laughs> yeah. so the, the spring would stretch. And then, you know, <laughs> from, from like, uh, <laughs> from grade 12 physics, you would be able to work out the momentum of the photon based on the spring constant and all that stuff. And so he said this, he said, okay, you can measure the, um, the momentum with the spring. And then you can see the photon on the back screen. So you know where it ended up, the position, and you know its momentum. So what's the deal here? Okay. Well, Niels Bohr actually went home, thought about this. And he's like, wait, did he just break the uncertainty principle? And... Actually, it turns out, no, he didn't, because the uncertainty principle is encoded in our universe. Or at least that's what we think. <clears throat> yeah. So far. But so here's, far. The, here's, here's the explanation, and I'm going to try to maybe break it down. It, like, this might, this might not be entirely correct, but it's, <laughs> like... <laughs> I love how you say like, that. <laughs> because, because it does get kind of technical in terms of, like, the concepts and all that stuff. But here's one way you can think about it, okay? So... In order to measure the actual amount by which the spring stretches or compresses, um, you should be you should have like some measurement device. And one way to think about this is imagine on on like the frame of this setup, you put like an arrow, and then you have a scale on the actual moving part of the of the double slit, uh, like the the piece of wood, let's say, with the two slits. You have like a ruler. And then so when the spring compresses, the ruler will move with respect to the arrow that's on the frame. And then you'll be able to actually tell um, by how much the spring compresses. Okay. In this situation, you would need, you would have to be able to see, right, the, the scale. But in this thought experiment, you are sending one single photon through the slit. Okay, and you can probably imagine the momentum transfer from the photon to the uh, spring apparatus here is going to be very small. In fact, so small that even the act of shining light, which would produce more photons onto this apparatus, would actually disturb the, the spring and by like... You're trying to measure the isolated event of one photon going through a split, through through a split. Uh, why did I keep saying split? split? <laughs> through a slit. But in order to tell the exact amount that by which the photon transferred its momentum, you'd have to be able to shine a light to be able to look and see by how much the spring compressed. But that that exact act of observing 
would disturb the spring because you're you're sending more photons onto the the apparatus there's no way einstein didn't think about this though because i think this is a pretty because because this is actually called the observer effect in quantum mechanics like this is a very famous thing that you just spoke about like how people think that oh you're oh by looking at something you disturb the quantum system it's not because you're looking at it it's because to look at something it requires light and when the photons bounce off from the experiment you're inevitably you know, messing with the experiment. Yeah. So that's actually called the observer effect. But the, I, I'm like, there's no way Einstein didn't think about that. This guy, man. Freaking genius. I don't know. He doesn't think about that. I think, I think the argument is actually a lot more subtle. Mm-hmm. And there, like, there's a lot of... Yeah, there probably is like, something pretty complicated because no, it does sound like something that could get very complicated. There, there are, like, a lot, there are a lot of technicalities that even I don't understand. Mm-hmm. I just kind of read through it and I say, oh, that's cool. <laughs> but mm-hmm. yeah, that's just kind of one way to think about it. Like even the act of trying to observe will disturb, will add uncertainty, right? So Einstein is claiming there is zero uncertainty in the position, zero uncertainty in the momentum. Well, it's like, okay, well, if I want to even look and see what is the momentum I'm I'm adding I'm adding an uncertainty, which yeah proves that the uncertainty principle still holds. Yeah, it's still all good. Holds. It's all good. It's all good. Uncertainty so, principle never lies. At least exactly, exactly what we know today. And so well, yeah. Um, I just want to talk about the second one real quick because Go the second it. one Go is even it. cooler. Okay. Go for it. <laughs> so the second one is called the light box, or I think it's it's Einstein's light box. Okay, and. This was his argument. He says, okay, you have a box that is, uh, you know, you're able to suspend it on a spring. And from there, you can tell the mass of the box or however you want to tell the mass of the box. The point is you have a, a device inside of the box that can produce a photon. And you also have a clock in the box that is exactly timed to a clock that is outside the box. And so... If you look at your clock that's outside of the box, it says the exact time that's... Okay, you get it. So Mm. now, here's what Einstein said. He says, we open a small slit in the box, we release a photon, and then we close that slit. Now, when we open the slit, we have, like, the the slit is is connected to the clock, that is inside the box. And so as soon as you open the slit, you know exactly at what time that the slit opened. And you can also tell on your clock because they're synced. Okay, so you know exactly when the photon left. And then after the photon leaves, what you do is you weigh the box or you, you see how much does it weigh now that the photon left. And so the argument here is E equals mc squared. You can plug in the value for mass and you can tell the exact amount of energy um, that is now in the box, I guess. And so you know the time, you know the energy perfectly well. There is no uncertainty here. So how do you explain that? How do you say, well, actually, no, there isn't uncertainty. Well, turns out it is. it took Niels Bohr a very long night okay of just <laughs> one thinking. night 
one night. Yeah, this was during the Slovak conference. I think, I think in 1930, might be the 26th one, but I think it's the 1931, um, the 1930 comma, the that one, not 1931. Anyways, <laughs> so uh, here is the, here is the argument, okay, to support the uncertainty principle, and this is actually quite a a physical diss, okay. And here's why. This is probably the most beautiful rebuttal ever. But here's what he says, okay? So, everything's perfectly fine. The clocks are timed together. You're able to measure when the photon leaves and all that stuff, okay? And you're also able to measure the mass of the box. But, remember how I said, you know, to be able to to weigh the box, you need something to weigh it, okay? No matter how you choose to weigh it, it's it's going to work out the exact same way, but in this case, we'll use a spring, okay? So you let a photon out of the box. Now the spring has compressed a little bit, which means that the box is suspended a little bit higher off of the ground. And so now, you know, everything's perfectly fine. You can measure the mass and you can measure the time on your clock Wait. at which the photon left. Since the spring compressed, wouldn't it have gone lower to the ground? Well, the spring is attached to oh yeah, because like it's on frame. the top, right? Yeah, the spring is oh, attached yeah. to a frame, so the box would okay, would okay, come okay, up. okay, 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 okay. But here's the the most beautiful rebuttal. He says, <laughs> Bohr says, according to the theory of general relativity, <laughs> time passes at different speeds when you experience different amounts of gravitational influence, okay? Which means, <laughs> I'm getting too excited right now. This is crazy. <laughs> this, is, this is the craziest argument. He says, which means when you release the photon from the box, the clock that's inside the box is now a little bit higher up in the gravitational field of the Earth, which means that now, your two clocks are out of sync, which means that the time that's on the clock inside the box is different from the time of the clock that's outside of the box, which means that you actually do not know when the photon left the box. Oh! Hence... <laughs> he uses hence, his own argument. The uncertainty principle holds. The uncertainty principle holds. Always. That's nuts. Einstein said, Einstein said, here's a situation, Boy said, I will use your own theory to that's disprove the your idea. That's the, that's the thing. That is he the, used the most his incredible own theory to, to prove him. That's amazing. Crazy. That's amazing. Absolutely crazy. That's amazing. Niels Bohr is legitimately like, he's up there. He's, he's, he's up there. He's, he's up my, there. He, he's my, he's, he's my, up there. Uh, he's up there. He's like right up there. How do you say, what's the word for this? Like the, my, not my favorite physicist, but like, he's my like. Idol? Is he your idol? I guess. He's my idol. Like, do you idol look up to him? Like, do you yeah, look up like, to Niels Bohr? Like, do you. Like to me, Niels Bohr is like the most like influential modern physicist. Even though he's not. Yeah, I get that though. Because it's a lot with, with quantum mechanics and stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. Niels though, Bohr is amazing. Even though it's hard to classify like, like, uh. <laughs> Like Bell with Bell's theorem, Bell's inequalities. He's actually an Irish physicist. 
um, is very, absolutely very influential because he actually took a mathematical statement that had nothing to do with physics to actually prove something about quantum mechanics, which means it's actually irrefutable, right? If I say this is something about just numbers and probabilities and, you know, you can apply the, like, the the situation, you can explain the situation with this theorem here, you actually can't say, no, that's not true because, you know, it's been proven mathematically. Very influential. Once it's mathematically proven, it's game over. Exactly, exactly. You just can't go back. You can't go back. <laughs> and then also Heisenberg. I just you Insane can't guy. you can't Insane really guy. you can't really uh rank. Okay, these to be guys. honest, all the the people in that picture, the Slovak conference yeah. picture. I mean, obviously there are a lot of people that are not included in there that yeah. are also very influential, yeah. very very very, you know, meaningful in today's yeah. science world, but basically those guys. I think yeah. they were very biased um with like the people they invited. Because there were a lot of physicists and scientists that just didn't get an invitation to those conferences, but absolutely deserve to be there. At the mm-hmm. same time, you can't invite everybody, so you have to make Obviously. decisions. But yeah. yeah. Anyways, I mean, we're not going to get into logistics of the Slovak conference, but it yeah. is something to consider. And those guys are very smart. And since we're talking about light, I think it's a cool transition to talk about another experiment. And I think this is super cool. This is just this is just in general very cool. This is just something that again you're just like, how did he even think about this? Like it's it's just interesting to think about astronomer by the name of Ol Romer. So Ol Romer existed in around the 1700s, right? And uh, this guy was an astronomer, and he accidentally solved sort of. For the speed of light. He was the first recorded person to ever measure or to quantify, not measure because he can't, but to quantify the speed of light. Because before Romer, everyone believed that either the speed of light was way too fast to measure or it was infinite. So most of the people before that had been under the impression that it was infinite. And I'm How would that sure make was- any sense though? It was, it was Descartes infinite. that said that too. And it was a philosopher, Descartes, that said that light, the speed of light is infinite. And again, I don't think they really knew enough about the Big Bang, the CMB. Yeah, of none course. of that had been invented yet. <laughs> of so, course. Exactly. So I guess they didn't really have any evidence for saying that it shouldn't be infinite. Yeah. Right. So that would make no, like that. nowadays that would make absolutely no obviously, sense. Obviously, <laughs> obviously, zero sense. But like back in those days when you don't have any evidence for really anything, even saying it's infinite is technically incorrect because you don't know that you think yeah. that. So saying that it is infinity is wrong. Anyways, so how did he do it? So this guy was basically measuring the orbit of Io around Jupiter. So Io is one of Jupiter's moons, and he was basically measuring the measuring when Io gets eclipsed by Jupiter with respect to the Earth. Right, like when you're measuring or when you're seeing Io with a telescope. So what he noticed was actually something that you would think is obvious because of the finite speed of light that we know now, but obviously back in back in the 1700s not not many people really understood that yet. So what he noticed was that while he was moving closer to Jupiter, the time intervals that Io spent in the eclipse 
has become was was becoming shorter and shorter. And this is while Earth was moving towards Jupiter in the orbit, right? Because Earth's in a much smaller orbit, so it's going to be catching up and moving away from Jupiter very fast. So you can have multiple, multiple measurements. And what he also noticed is that when he was moving away from Jupiter, the time intervals were getting longer. So By how much? Exactly. So it was 11 minutes every round. Every round, it was 11 minutes from when it was the longest to the shortest. It was about 11 minutes off from the average predicted value. That's pretty significant, to be so, honest. Exactly, because also Jupiter is quite far away. Yeah. Right? So it's also like 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 these small changes in, like, it, it might be like a few light minutes. Maybe not. Hmm. Yeah, it's probably, yeah, because it's more than one AU. So it's going to be more than eight light minutes of difference, right? So light takes more than eight minutes for to, to get from the sun to earth so it's probably going to take a little more because wait what's the distance from earth to jupiter it's i think it's, it's definitely five over in one units. yeah it's something like five so it's it's going to be like 40 light minutes or something like that yeah. anyways point that i'm getting at is that it's actually this, um it's 10 minutes 10 light minutes from earth to mars so pr really? it's probably yeah yeah because I remember seeing in a in a Veritasium video that it would take the Earth wait it would take twenty minutes to send a message and get a message back. That I believe is not okay. Those are different reasons, though. I don't think that's because of straight line. I don't know twenty minutes because I'm just thinking like because the sun light from the sun takes eight and a half minutes to reach Earth, and that's one astronomical unit. So I'm thinking, is there one astronomical unit between Earth and Mars? Yeah, definitely. Okay. 100%. I'm in an astronomy minor. I should really know this, but um, hopefully no one, none of my teachers yeah, see this. Yeah, <laughs> uh, the distance from Mars to Earth is 258 million kilometers. So it's more than that. It's more than an astronomical unit. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, well, okay. So, well, we have our answer right there. Anyways, anyways, the point, the point that this experiment is for is that he measured that IO was having a longer eclipsing period as you were moving away. And he was, uh, and uh, he told himself, well, the orbit of IO is not changing. Like that's obviously pretty rigid. So what's, what's changing is how long I am looking at it for. Mm -hmm. And that means how long the light is taking or what I'm seeing through a telescope, that light is taking from there to reach my telescope. Because mm -hmm. remember, a star 500 million light years away, if we're measuring from a telescope, we are seeing the star 500 million light years ago. So if we're looking at it take a longer time, it's because the light is taking a longer time to get to us. Mm -hmm. So we are seeing a longer time interval. And you can also think about this. As if they were like, like imagine you're going through like waves that are coming onto the shore. Mm -hmm. You would be, let's say there's three waves that are coming towards the shore. You would be able to get over those three waves faster if you were going into the ocean than as if you were going towards the shore as well, because you'd have to go faster than the actual waves themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're going towards the waves, you actually see the waves faster than you were to see them if you're going away from them. Mm -hmm. And so he, so Romer postulated a calculation for the speed of light. And interestingly enough, he never did it. He postulated the calculation, but it was Christian Huygens who actually calculated the very first ever quantization 
of the speed of light. And he got an answer of somewhere around 210,800 kilometers per second. Now we which know this is speed not of, bad. Which is <laughs> not, not bad, bad at, all. at all. Which we know today the speed of light is about 300,000 kilometers per second. So 200, <clears throat> 210 might be like, oh, it's 90,000 less, but it could have been magnitudes more or less. Like mm -hmm. the accuracy is not terrible for 1700s, right? Mm. For the 16th century. So Why it's, didn't it's, he do the calculation? I feel like I it's not that know. hard. <laughs> I feel because, like the calculation isn't that hard. Because, okay, but let me tell you his errors, though. Now, now here is why his calculation wasn't very exact. Because, number one, those 11 minutes and 11 minutes that he added up to 22 minutes wasn't exact, wasn't very accurate. Because of the orbits of the Earth and Jupiter, mm -hmm. it was actually not 22 minutes, the, time, the total time interval. It was actually 16. So he was off by quite a big number, but somehow still got a very close number to the actual speed of light. Mm -hmm. But... So these time intervals, plus I believe there was also an element of the orbital, uh, uh, not orbital. Yeah, the orbital, so, so the radius of the Earth, because they basically had to compare that time interval to the radius, the orbital radius of Earth, or, or the radius of Jupiter, or one of those things. It was some mathematical calculation that they were a little bit off on, and they didn't have the exact numbers. So they, I guess they just used approximations and they came to this number that was a little off. So mm -hmm. that's the reasoning. But again, what he did, this experiment isn't monumental because, wow, he found a speed of light. No, no, no. That's not why it's monumental. It's insane because he showed the world that the speed of light is not infinite. And the speed of light is not. Oh, also, also, I mean, this obviously kind of follows from what I was saying. But the time interval lengthening as he was moving away was exactly the same as the time interval shortening as he was going close. Mm. So that is how he also kind of concluded that it must be finite. It's not variable depending on which direction I'm going in, right? And that was a very important discovery that he also kind of implicitly made. Obviously, none of this was really like, oh, wow, we found this, we found this. This was all happened through decades and decades of research and calculations and stuff. But after all that, we finally had an idea for a finite speed of light. And I think the, again, the idea that that poses is very interesting. Awesome. Yeah. So I guess uh, those are all the experiments we wanted to talk about today. What about the Michelson-Morley? You think, you think we can talk about the Michelson-Morley experiment? I think we'll have to save that one for later. Because I, I, I was talking about the speed of light. Anyway, so it, yeah. <laughs> It has things to do directly with measuring the speed of light. But to be honest, I really love this episode. Let us know if you did as well, because I think I am quite inclined to make a part two of For this sure. episode. So sure. let us know if you guys like this episode. I think as I mean, as I just said, I think Parker, you enjoyed it too. Hopefully yeah. it was really cool, man. Like these experiments, it, man. some of these people are... Like, I mean, I hate to work, I hate to use the word genius, first of all, but like, these are very smart people. These are some very smart people because they thought completely outside of the box. Like they were light years outside of the box. There's smart people in every epoch yeah. that come up with, you know, whatever they can. Like, I'm sure like a person nowadays if we were to transport them back to like the resources that someone has 
in the 1700s, they would be able to come up with some way of measuring the speed of light. But it's just they don't now, think about like if we yeah. have the resources now, no, we send no, them back no, to no, we send anyone like a, just a smart person back then, they'd be able to come up with a way. It's just because nowadays they don't really think about measuring the speed of light because it's already known. But yeah, I don't know about that, though, because in like the 15, 16, 1700s, like that was, to be honest, like the those were like centuries of discovery and innovation where people literally had nothing else to do. But, you know. I guess go to libraries and just but if read you tell books. Them, like you, I mean, you tell I them guess. measure the speed of light. They'll sit down and think about it. Like you think someone from like a smart person yeah, from today? Definitely. I guess like, definitely. If if Einstein can come up with the things he's come okay, up with, okay. Einstein is a Einstein. Then, like those are all like like exceptions. I mean, but they're just I, they're I, just I, people. <laughs> I guess if I guess if we send Einstein back to seventeen hundred, I'm pretty sure he would be like, able to calculate. There, this there are there are very smart people out here that yeah, uh, that is true. Do and it's people things. like these that you know think about all of these because experiments they kind of go two ways, right? They can go one of two ways. Either you discover something experimentally, like you're doing something and you're like, oh, whoa, that's pretty cool. Let me go make a theory on it. Like there's that kind of experiment and there's another experiment where you already have an understanding you have a theory and you're like hey let me test it with this experiment to see if it actually works so those are like two kind of different types of experiments that we see and i think both are equally like important like in their own ways you know like like if you see something really cool and you make a theory with that i think that's a pretty that's a pretty uh pretty interesting way to live life you know for sure for sure so if you did enjoy this episode make sure to leave a like on youtube and subscribe also follow us wherever you're listening to this let's try to get to ten thousand followers by when when do you think ten thousand okay so right now we're at 65 right let's say let's say august by august what ten thousand so it's march april Actually, that might be too long. Maybe, maybe five, July. Really? You think too long? Yeah, I think July. Five months. Five, yeah, we, I think five had, months. Five. Yeah. We had we had two thousand followers in December. So, if you do the math on that, um, but yeah, that is true actually. So uh, yeah, leave a follow, leave a like, leave a whatever, and mm-hmm. uh, let us know. Yeah. Let us know how your day went. I don't know. Whatever you want. Yeah. So let um, us know. Let us know. This has been episode number 54 of the math and physics podcast i'm your host parker and i'm ray and we will see you soon bye guys